First, I remember wrapping up my cigarettes in maxi pad wrappers to try and sneak them in. And then we drove um, from Lake Arrowhead to the school and it was like silent and my mom was crying the whole time. We got there and I went into the administration building and they took a picture of me. And then they had um, my big sister at the time um, come and walk me around the campus. And that's when she dropped the mother load on me. I'm seriously. You cannot listen to any music. You cannot talk to your friends. You cannot talk to your brother and sister. You cannot talk to your parents. You will not be going home for two years. The woman Laura just described how she was admitted to CEDU in 1989. And she's not alone. Multiple people on the medicalwhistleblower.org site describe how they were brought to this school and admitted without understanding why they were there or what this place was even about. Even Paris Hilton went there at some point. Now, although the school she's most well-known for speaking out about is Provo Canyon, Provo wasn't her first experience at a so-called treatment center. CEDU was, and it certainly was not a good one. So welcome to CEDU. No sex, no drugs, no violence. You can't talk to anybody you're on bands from. Five, six, seven, eight people fighting to cross the room just so that they could yell at you and tell you what a monster you were and what an asshole you were and how you're not getting it. And talking about being yelled at for over an hour straight. Some say they thought they were only at the facility for an interview. Others thought it was a typical boarding school, but this simply was not the case. Instead, CEDU was another dangerous player within the troubled teen industry. This occurred in CEDU's raps, each rap session being a psychology group session led by untrained staff. Multiple times a week, for hours, students would scream at each other, accuse one another of things like laziness, and let out their anger. Despite knowing they were lying at times, they did it anyway, because you don't want the anger pointed at you. The staff, again, the underqualified staff, watched over this and even encouraged it. Maybe they thought that the more they insisted, the more they pushed, that the closer they would get to a goodwill hunting moment where Will has a breakthrough and falls apart on Sean's shoulder. Not you, it's not your fault. (laughs) The difference here is that in the context of the movie, Sean is a professional and he's assuring Will that he's not to blame for the hell he went through. Sidhu did pretty much the exact opposite pointing fingers, directing rage at struggling teenagers, and just hoping that these kids would fall apart. And this sounds kind of familiar, right? Well, if you've been watching me for a while, this tough love tactic rings a bell, and perhaps you've heard of Synanon. Do you remember that episode from, I wanna say a year and a half to two years ago? Well, that drug treatment program became a commune and a religion, right? That whole mess of a situation. You know, they were the one with the leader that tried to murder a cult-busting attorney with a rattlesnake. Well, CEDU was nothing more than Synanon for Kids that disbanded in 2005, and they were no better than their inspiration. So today we're going to take a look at the once popular troubled teen giant on Dark Dives. Hour and a half, it just seemed like three hours that you'd be getting yelled at, you were on the hot seat. You know, it was like a lot of times you had to come up with the right answer or it's just gonna go on and on and on and on. Sometimes they, they would just start yelling at you, to, I think, to try to make you to cry. Like I would be getting yelled at at stuff that didn't apply to me sometimes. And I think that they were just like, some of the staff were just hoping it would trigger something in me. The few times that I did cry in raps, it was because I was being yelled at by like an adult. 
It's strange how cult-like organizations are so intertwined with one another. It's like a weird little network web of shadiness, scumminess, terribleness, all of it. Mark Hughes, the founder of Herbalife, was raised by Joanne and Stuart Hartman after his mother passed away. One of their sons, Mark Hartman, had been experimenting with alcohol and drugs, which only became worse when Joanne and Stuart split. Back then in the 60s, he was sent to SEDU, a program that was meant to serve as a watered-down version of Synanon. Its founder, Mel Wasserman, was a furniture store owner that sponsored recovering addicts at Synanon. However, he didn't want to be quite as confrontational as Synanon was. Turn down the volume on the obvious cult-likeness a bit, and then you've got SEDU. It's a bit easier to sell to the public for teens that way. And selling it was exactly what Hartman did. According to the LA Times, quote, Mark Hartman was interested in the fundraising program that Rosen, a former staff member, had started to supplement CDU's meager public subsidies. He accompanied other CDU students on fundraising trips to upscale Southern California communities, dressed in a suit and armed with his pitch. You say, I have a story, Rosen explains. You talk about who you are, who you've become. You try to inspire others. It would be no different at CDU or Herbalife. It's so important to realize how SIDU was presented to people to see why it grew and gained a positive reputation. It's pretty easy to look at this organization and ask the parents why they didn't do more research. But when you have former students pitching it as an excellent place for kids that did right by them, it's easier to see how someone could get caught up in the possibilities. In the beginning, in the late 60s, they were referred to as an experiment in youth work. Based in Ricci Canyon, Sidu had kids between 12 and 25 working on a ranch and learning basic skills. It was meant to provide an environment that would stimulate emotional growth, not necessarily intellectual growth. As a welfare department supervisor, Harry Friedman pointed out, Sidu still needed to actually set up a school, but hey, no worries, they were on it. Sidu intended to set up an excellent private school. The boys and girls were separate, no drugs were allowed, and there was no violence on the premises. Things were off to a great start for about one year. In 1969, the allegations started rolling in. One San Bernardino County Sun headline read, allegations range from orgies to brainwashing to bad food. One of these things is not like the other. Typically, when you see a headline formatted like that, you'd expect the worst offense to be held for last. And I'm sorry, and I know this is not a laughing matter, but seeing it go from horrific acts to kids to bad food is kind of funny, but not like in a funny way, if that makes sense. I guess Tom Green, his staff writer, someone just didn't have their priorities in order when they made that headline. But I digress. Tom also wrote that there had been concerning activity at SEDU. One 17-year-old Becky started to act as if she were in a hypnotic state, according to her mother, Ruth. Becky's outlook changed the longer she was at SEDU and not for the best. She lost interest in college and decided to move into a SEDU townhouse where she graduated from high school. Eventually, officials stopped telling Ruth where her daughter was staying and stopped allowing Ruth to visit altogether. Ruth did bring Becky home in time, telling the paper that the kids she met there all sounded the same. There wasn't an individual thought among them. Some had been threatened with CYA, California Youth Authority, or juvenile hall or state hospitals if they left. Many feel it would be a pleasure after SIDU, Ruth said. The article added that the other allegations were equally troubling, like no professional staff, doctors, or social workers on site. This not only means no adequate medical attention, but how would these kids be treated in the first place? Some of the other accusations do seem a bit more outlandish, I'll admit. A couple of others said that SIDU was a scene of orgies and it's a communist-inspired venture. I'd buy that the schooling and treatment were poor, but the last one is sounding like some red scare fear-mongering to me. 
There also may have been a hint of anti-Semitism tossed in there as an anonymous woman told the news that it was the Jewish community supporting Sidhu. However, she added that a Jewish boy seemingly ran away from the facility after three days and went to her for help. Quote, he said the place nauseated him and the whole outfit behind it, the woman said. And there we have it, basically. A troubled teen organization that supposedly condones orgies has a communist feel, hypnotizes kids, and is supported by the Jewish community. Well, those were the stories in the early days, at least. But as time wore on, it wasn't just the stories coming from former members that were concerning. It was the lack of them, too. Thirty years ago, in 1993, John Inman disappeared. The 17-year-old had been at Sidhu at the time when he ran away. Then, a year later in 1994, Blake Pursley vanished without a trace. Blake was only 14 years old and disabled. He functioned at the level of a nine-year-old and walked with a limp and had limited motor skills in his right hand and arm, according to the Sun. Not only had Blake been at Sidhu at the time, but it was obvious that they simply were not qualified to handle kids with disabilities. Both of these young men disappeared under similar circumstances. They didn't have their medications, they had seizure disorders, and were quote, softer kids. See, back in the early 90s, Sidhu was not focused on addicts, violent, troubled youth anymore. In order to get, quote, asses in bed, as Sidhu's founder put it, they needed to expand their client base. And what's the best way to do that? Well, catastrophize normal teen behavior and convince parents that their average rebellious teen is in desperate need of their services. They built their network, including corrupt mental health professionals, and started spreading the word. Quote, the children who come out of Sidhu are the future, are our future, are the country's future. A fawning parent shamelessly declares in the late 90s promotional video filmed a handful of years after two children disappeared from it. John and Blake were effectively these softer kids that weren't Sidhu's original targets. Certainly they had their struggles, but it doesn't seem like their parents sent them to the school to straighten them out, so to speak. According to LA Mag, Blake's mom enrolled him there simply because she thought the program would offer more individualized attention than her son would get at a typical school. And there's so many things wrong with this. Most of these problems that we've seen at troubled teen programs before. For one, when you group kids of vastly different needs together, you're going to run into a ton of issues. A young boy with violent behavior and another that has depression and developmental disabilities aren't about to respond to CDU's one program in the same way. But by no means does it seem like they were individualized as they promised parents, let alone able to handle anyone if we're being honest. LA Mag says that considering that they had no professionals whatsoever on staff, they weren't even equipped to handle children with food allergies. But sure, it's a great program and the children are the future, right? You'd think that after one disappearance in 1993, they would have been more careful and more observant, but clearly no such thing happened. But these aren't the only cases either because in 2004, it happened again when another young man named Daniel Yuen disappeared. Apparently, he'd only been there for about two weeks before splitting from the residency. Although his parents remained hopeful speaking with ABC 15 years later, there still hasn't been any sign of their son. But why the hell hasn't Sidhu found these boys? Where the hell was law enforcement during all of this? Just twiddling their thumbs and staring at the fucking sky? And as it turns out, they basically were, according to LA Mag. In fact, it's so much worse than that. Quote, it appears that CDU officials actively fed information to responding officers without follow-up scrutiny. 
According to a legal document the UN shared with me, SBSD, San Bernardino Sheriff's Department, refused to search for their missing son in 2004. It took threats of submitting a misconduct complaint for law enforcement to finally check the area weeks later. Apparently, officers didn't even compel the program to give them evidence or issue subpoenas for it. Sidhu kept their mouths shut and the police shrugged their shoulders and said, oops, I guess we'll never find them then. This school is known for serial lying as LA Mag puts it, but sure, the cops just trusted what they said and didn't ask for anything more. Makes perfect sense. Well, it kind of does if you know their reasoning. Every time an officer tried to give Sidhu even a hint of a hard time, the school would simply file a complaint against them. It basically became a headache for officers to go up there, so they just stopped because it was too hard for them, I guess. Even though California's Department of Social Services saw the endless allegations and disappearances, they did nothing to shut them down. More and more, it was starting to look less like neglect and more like the cops were purposefully just ignoring Sidhu. 415 juvenile runaway reports. Yes, over 400 were filed just between 1997 to 2005. Yet the program consistently did not give those to the police. Instead, they drove around the community and then if they didn't find them, asked the kids' frantic parents if they'd like to hire a private detective. It was easy. Sudu told them they would just add it to the tuition fee. These private investigators weren't even independent professionals. They were also on Sidhu's payroll. Quote, simply put, Sidhu's endless runaway issue was another source of revenue for the mountain community. And truthfully, my jaw hit the floor when I read that. I don't think that there's words to describe just how fucked up that is other than that's fucked up. Sidhu didn't even do the bare minimum when kids ran away. And then if they couldn't spot them while just driving around town, they'd tell parents to pay an extra fee for a private investigator that was just on their payroll anyway. A fee that basically just went straight to Sidhu. After Sidhu lost your kid, like it's their fault and now you get to pay for their fuck up. I just, it's very hard to wrap my brain around that. Of course, a parent is going to pay it out of desperation to try and find their child and Sidhu knows that. I guess if you thought the troubled teen industry couldn't get any more heartless, here we are again. Now, there is just so much more that could be said of their corruption. The lawsuits piled up in the early 2000s and Daniel's disappearance did contribute to them shutting down in 2005. But before we discuss Sidhu's end, I want to take a moment to talk about like what happened to those that stayed there. What was Sidhu truly like? And before we get into that, I usually put the ad read later on in the episode, but uh, it isn't, it's bad. Like, I'm just gonna be real, it's pretty bad. So I'm gonna go ahead and put the ad here just to give you a couple minutes to think about it. If you wanna click out or continue, it's your call, but it's, it's dark as per usual when we cover the troubled teen industry. So I'm gonna place ads here, give you a couple minutes to think about it. And then we're gonna jump into some really dark stuff. So hello, today's first sponsor is me. In case you didn't know, uh, we do have a Patreon, patreon.com slash Illuminati. In case you were looking for these episodes to be ad-free, if you don't like the ads being here, the ads that YouTube or Spotify or whatever puts in the middle or all over the place on these episodes. Well, over on patreon.com slash Illuminati, you can go ahead and get all of these episodes ad-free. You can also get uh, bonus episodes. We do Q and A's, you can get letters from Casper. We do movie days, all sorts of really cool stuff. So go ahead and check it out, patreon.com slash Illuminati. Using the internet without ExpressVPN is like leaving your laptop exposed at the coffee shop while you run to the bathroom. Most of the time, truthfully, you're probably fine. But what if one day you come out of the bathroom and your laptop is simply gone? Well, every time you connect to an unencrypted network, cafes, hotels, airports, whatever, any hacker on the same network can gain access to your personal data. It doesn't take much technical knowledge to hack somebody either. 
just some cheap hardware is needed. And apparently it's at the point where even a 12 year old could do it. And your data is valuable, by the way. Hackers can make up to $1,000 per person selling your information. So you need to use a VPN. And that's why I recommend ExpressVPN. And because ExpressVPN creates an encrypted tunnel. It's a secure tunnel between your device and the internet where hackers can't get into your sensitive data. And it's not just for your laptop, it's for your phone, tablets, even your TVs, so many more devices. It's super easy. You just fire up the app, click a button and get protected. And just like that, you're perfectly fine to browse the internet. I use it a lot, especially with some of the topics that we cover. Sometimes I'm like, you know, I just don't want my ISP knowing that I'm looking into all of these things because who really wants to know that you're looking at the troubled teen industry? I don't even want to know how they would try to target ads for that. So thank God I put a VPN on when I'm doing research for some of this shit because it's bananas. But the reality is the internet is everywhere with pretty much everything we do. It's integrated into our personal lives, our work lives, literally everything. So make sure you protect yourself while you're browsing online. So secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash darkdives. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash darkdives. And you can get an extra three months for free. Again, expressvpn.com slash darkdives. Please note that this portion of today's episode will discuss child abuse in various forms. If you're not in the headspace to hear this topic, please feel free to click away. In 2018, an anonymous medium writer that I'll simply call John Doe told his story about Sidhu. He was sent there in 1999 for depression, at which point Sidhu was an involuntary two-year program, though he was released a little early for good behavior. Kind of sounds like prison, right? Well, according to John, his parents, as well as many others, believed that the school was a touchy-feely kibitz or settlement with hippie counselors. That's how Sidhu presented itself to the world after all. Yet, if we take a look at its roots, Synanon, of course, there's nothing feel good about them. The founder, Mel Wasserman, and some of his friends and donors were all former Sinanites. Sidhu may have been a milder version, as we mentioned earlier, but John says that the school heavily borrowed its messaging. For example, Sidhu means see yourself as you are and do something about it. This was the line used to explain sessions where young people work out their problems and discover themselves. These are Sidhus. I guess that's one way to explain group therapy where teens just yell at each other, but it doesn't really validate or confirm any actual mental health benefit. Despite this, it was medical professionals that recommended the place to parents. John explained, quote, dosed up on dangerous unneeded benzos and antidepressants, I started seeing a therapist. Sidhu was the therapist's recommendation, his only recommendation. He counseled my parents soon after my overdose, conveniently with a brochure at hand. This facility he claimed was the best place for depression treatment. When John's parents called around for the opinions of other families, they heard the same thing. It had saved their son's life. It was worth the seven year loan some parents had to take out. Even the Sidhu kids practically acted like real estate agents as they were instructed. No visitors got a glimpse behind the facade. But once someone stepped inside, it was a different story. One staffer was accused of serial pedophilic behavior. Another former student, Solis, said that she endured physical, psychological, emotional, and sexual torment. She was called names, told her parents didn't love her, and humiliated. All of this was consistent, daily, and so traumatizing that she has severe PTSD to this day. Quote, "'My PTSD becomes triggered so easily and I disassociate so quickly that I cannot much take on large or important responsibilities. I am in a state of arrested development at 15 years old.' And I can't imagine what it must've been like to suffer through Sidhu for two years, day in and day out, being screamed at, 
told you're unloved, all while being a teenager, no less. So I think it's no wonder that this is called brainwashing by some other survivors, because if you're told something like this, of course you're going to believe it. Another survivor, Sarah, said pretty much the same. Though she wasn't on drugs or what people might consider a troubled teen to be, Sarah was struggling in school. She had undiagnosed PTSD and a learning disorder and frankly, didn't think things could get worse. Before Sidhu, she had experienced physical, emotional, and sexual abuse. Yet it's Sidhu that she called psychological torture. No one raised a hand to her or denied her food and water, but threats constantly loomed over Sarah and the others. Paris Hilton herself briefly touched upon this, saying that when she was at Sidhu, the other girls told her how she really didn't want to end up at Provo. Sarah says the same. The staff would tell you that if you weren't compliant, you'd be sent to a place where they would beat you, where they'd even watch you on the toilet. Quote, there were also kids that got shipped off to the mental hospital and literally came back drooling. The thought of being locked in a hospital and force-fed medication was more than enough to make me toe the line. In retrospect, I would have been better off in the mental hospital. There, at least, I would have been treated by professionals and in accordance with the law. But if it was this bad, why not warn parents? Why didn't Sarah find a way to tell her mom, right? That's because staffers monitored phone calls, and if John or other kids said anything unsavory or took an argumentative tone, his privilege for phone calls ended. Once you get there, you can't tell them what's going on. If you try and write a letter or talk to them on the phone, the letter's not sent out, the phone call has ended, you know, and if you may, do manage to get something out to your parents, the school will immediately turn around and explain to them that you're lying and being manipulative to try and get out of there. Nobody ever bothered to ask, well, maybe this is an issue if my kid wants to get out of here. Kids simply didn't feel safe speaking up and warning their parents. They weren't even permitted to. It's no wonder some just abided by the rules and endured whatever treatment came their way to get out of that place as soon as possible. According to Solis, when she did send her mother a letter to covertly tell her about the abuse, Sidhu was quick to reassure her and throw Solis under the bus. They told her mom Solis was a quote, bad kid who wanted to go home and do drugs and have sex with boys. Don't worry, she is lying to try and manipulate you to take her home. We assure you none of that is happening. Not only was this untrue, but what the hell kind of way is this to talk to a parent anyway, or a patient? Oh, and remember those raps from earlier? the sessions in which kids were pushed to the breaking point and as some claimed, even pushed to lie? Yeah, basic privacy wasn't given either, as John says that some of his words were relayed to his parents, even when his confessions were false. Didn't pay any attention, so you could get away. You, you got, people lied. I mean, I really, I've told people this. I feel like Sidhu trained us to lie because we got rewarded for lying in raps, a lot. It was, you got lots of rewards for lying in raps. Cause so now I'm sitting there and I'm thinking, okay, so she's talking to her about slacking off. I'm not in her peer group. I wasn't on work crews with her that day. I wasn't there, I guess you can't really expect fine. someone that's not a medical professional to follow HIPAA guidelines, but still. It's basic for these teens to have a safe space where they can talk. And not only was this group therapy not the space they needed, but their parents were privy to these conversations too. It's funny in an upsetting sort of way because former students say that if they tried to speak to their parents about what was happening in raps, the calls were ended. But if CDU staff wanted to tell parents what the kids were saying, that was just fine. Once again, it was another way that the school ensured that they controlled the narrative. Worse yet, the whole facility was simply an unsafe place. Throughout the facility, there were allegations of sexual and physical abuse of students, both by other students and CDU staff members. The Alpenhorn News even wrote in 2009 that James Lee Crummel, a serial child molester and child murderer, may have had years of free, unsupervised access to the students because he hung around one of the school's contracted psychiatrists. 
And yes, you did hear that correct. One of the school's psychiatrists brought a child murderer with him when he was working at the facility. Apparently, Crummel even later ended up on death row after he was convicted of murdering a 13-year-old hiker. The teenager's body wasn't discovered for decades, and Crummel's lengthy rap sheet goes all the way back to the 1960s. And I know what you're thinking. Could Crummel be behind the disappearances we mentioned earlier? I'll admit that I've got no idea, but the number of runaways did increase whenever Crummel visited campus. These possibilities are being investigated in John and Blake's cases, though he is not considered a suspect in Daniel's disappearance. Not only did three boys go missing, but it's a distinct possibility that a Sidhu psychiatrist literally led their kidnapper and killer right to them. I truly hope I'm wrong about this and that the boys simply did run off and weren't harmed by staff members, but the fact that this is even possible is beyond upsetting. Between this, Sidhu's self-policing, child abuse accusations, and up to 30 to 40 calls about the facility in a month, why weren't they closed sooner? Well, if you were to ask one of the licensing analysts now, you'd get a message that they're not equipped to speak about a facility that's been closed for over 15 years. And apparently that's the answer that John Doe got, a non-answer. And yeah, I'm, I'm pretty beyond words with this one. Thankfully, the facility was closed in 2005 in the midst of these scandals and lawsuits, though the scandals harshly feels like a harsh enough word. However, the aftermath felt by the horrors of Sidhu still lives on. The survivors of Sidhu are forever scarred by what happened. Though many have bravely spoken out, as Solis explains, these experiences continue to haunt them. Authorities have continued to provide incomplete answers when they respond at all, and brutal practices have simply been shrugged off. Whether at Synanon or at Sidhu, if anyone had a bad time, it's simply because they were a bad kid. Personally, I don't really like the term troubled teen anyway, and the way that many of these teenagers are depicted feeds into the problem itself. If you hear about a so-called troubled teen running away from a rehabilitation facility on the news, you may be more prone to roll your eyes and feel sympathy for the parents and the school. After all, they're troubled, probably drowning kittens or doing drugs, as John says. But when you really look at who was actually sent to Sidhu, it simply is not the case. These were teenagers with depression and other disabilities whose parents wanted to give them proper care. Once they were mistreated and cut off from the outside world, they ran off in desperation. That sounds like a very different story, but it's far closer to the truth. That's not to say that no one in Sidhu had any violent tendencies or addictions, but the way these teens were often discussed completely lacks in empathy and compassion. Whether you believe Sidhu was a scandal-ridden boarding school, a prison, or a cult, at the end of the day, the point remains. Please, parents, always know where you're sending your child. Whether it's a school or a treatment facility, just do a little bit of reading, try and figure it out. And if it seems a little too perfect, there's probably something lurking underneath the surface. Ask to speak with them privately, with your child when they're there. Research the institution and those talking with them. Sidhu said that these kids are our future, so let's start treating them like it. But with all of that being said, that's where we're ending today's episode. I hope you learned something new here today. And if you did, make sure that you're liking, following, and subscribing to stay up to date with all the latest episodes. As always, thank you for making it to the end of today's episode. I really do appreciate it. And I'll see you in the next one. Bye. My first rap or my second rap, I saw what would become a familiar sight, but what was really, really shocking to me. I saw a girl uh, my age, maybe 16, she might've been 17, bending over and leaning her head between her knees and yelling a bit and then screaming a bit 
You know, when a child cries like an infant and, and they wail and they use every part of their lung, you know, that loud, but in an adult's body, she's just, she's, she's just exploding.